welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. Can you believe that this is the 28th episode? I hope this episode finds you well. I am a little exhausted tonight. I had yoga teacher training all weekend, and so I'm trying to record this late at night before to get it out there before Monday morning. Uh, this is my first time recording in my new home. Hopefully it sounds all right. Um, I don't know if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram. My Insta is going somewhere sober. But I just moved with my boyfriend and I get to set up my own little recording studio for the podcast in one of the rooms in this old eccentric house. Um, but yeah, enough about me. Tonight or today, I'm going to share with you the second part of our Sangha safety discussion where the community discusses questions like, how do we as a Sangha set an intention for safety? What safety statements can we read at meetings? And what does safety look like in online communities? And there's more questions than that. Uh, but before I share the talk, I want to let everyone know about our upcoming live online Dharma talk. Next Sunday, October 6th, is the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy, which is a live taping of our podcast with guest teacher Eddie Lashur. The talk is called Noticing, Tracking, and Shifting Perceptions. And here's a little bit about what to expect from the talk. There is a correlation between our inner state of being and our outer circumstances. By noticing our inner sensations and thoughts, tracking them to witness their changes, we make the unconscious conscious and can hold the inner and the outer experiences in an attitude of expanded focus. Observing our own continuously evolving experience centers us in reality and allows us to nourish whatever arises with less fear and more love. Developing an increased capacity for resiliency allows for a shift in perception towards a more loving state of being in which to create our reality. In this episode, we will discover our own organic wisdom to notice patterns, track changes, and transform limited perceptions. Rather than a constant search for that elusive something out there, we turn attention within to feel for what wants to emerge. Noticing thoughts, stories, and sensations, and tracking them to observe positive changes as they happen, can shift our perception and create greater clarity and meaning in life. So that's what's going to be happening next Sunday. So tune in to the talk next Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 p.m. in London. I'll post the website in the description and it will be on Facebook and our page BuddhistRecovery.org. It does take place on Zoom. So yeah, look out for that. Okay, and now here is Sangha Safety Part 2. So our question that we were looking at was how do we as a community or a sangha 
set an intention for safety. And these were the responses that we came up with. First of all, that we acknowledge that Sanghas make their own decisions, by and large, especially the isolated groups. Each Sangha asked, is asked how to be safe, setting group guidelines and intentions immediately and ongoing. The first session of a new group is um, sets the ground rules and is that, that those uh, ground rules are read in every following meeting or added to or changed as needed. But they are always stated at the beginning of every meeting and then on a regular basis do they need to be changed. Have several people leading. In other words, rotation of leadership, whether it's a small meeting or a large meeting. Having a, in a, a larger organization, oh, having an oversight organization, if you will, if you're part of an organization like, um, well, there was a, somebody mentioned about AA and there was a problem going on in some group of meetings. And so people who had some training came in. Is that the person who mentioned that? Who was it? Yes. Someone from the district went to each meeting in the area and gave a training on safety. So having a larger organization to help accountability to be, and I'm going to use this word carefully, enforced. But people being caught and retaught again and again, so that never left group consciousness. Uh, there was also the idea of a Buddhist recovery network, and I'm going to use this term ethics team, and it might be similar to what AA had. And there was another idea about an online support, uh, reporting system. And the only tricky thing about that is if somebody puts in an anonymous report, how does that get followed up on? And is it a fair report or not? I mean, that, that gets into kind of tricky territory. But it is a first step if someone is feeling victimized. And it was also mentioned that it would be a really good idea for ethics training or conflict resolution training or being able to sit down in a community where at least a person's being a perpetrator or people are feeling like victims where they can sit down and have the conversation around safety and not tiptoe around it. And that especially the victim needs to be able to feel they will go to whatever person or committee or oversight organization and they will get heard and have results. And I will add this that the uh, Boost Recovery Network ethics team would be a great idea. It would also involve training which would also involve finances, which would also involve, yes, Donna. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we're going to put all this together because this is really going to become the issue of what do you want to take back to your communities? And if we put this all together, there's going to be some good stuff in it. 
So now, who had question number five? So um, a lot of, I, we wrote down some ideas that have already been discussed when we were going through those first three questions. A lot of ideas have to do with preambles that are read at meetings, which is, uh, ties into what you were just talking about. So preambles are safety statements that are read at every meeting, and including things like um, all are welcome here, and also that this is our meeting that we have to all take ownership for what goes on here. We may have a facilitator, but we also have to support them. I'll talk more about that in a sec. Um, a, some kind of safety statement in the preamble, and also perhaps a statement that we can't guarantee your safety, so we expect to work together on that. Um, helping, ask in that preamble, perhaps requesting that people self-identify their pronouns or however they want to be identified at the meeting helps people feel safe from a wide variety of backgrounds and mentioning that, that you have the opportunity to pass, you never have to talk. Um, other ways that local meetings create safety is having a specialty meeting, like a queer, trans, and allies meeting, for example, or women only or men only meeting. Um, those meetings themselves can create a sense of safety and also holding your meeting in a safe place like a queer center or a place that already has some safety built into the actual location. Um, and just the quality of how we listen at a meeting. If a meetings where people really listen authentically just automatically helps people feel safer. We talked about the facilitator themselves can sometimes be more at risk um, because of their role. And so we talked about some local meetings are really good at supporting a facilitator who maybe is being um, verbally attacked by somebody who's inebriated coming to the meeting and that other people in the meeting can step up and say, you know, let's not give her a hard time. And similarly, if the facilitator themselves is falling down on the job and not following through on a time limit or something, we don't just abdicate, we all, it's our meeting, and so we have to step up and say, oh, hey, I think it's time to go on to this next thing. Um, and facilitators particularly can be vulnerable when it comes to giving out contact info, so that's something to think about in terms of everybody at a meeting. To what extent do we share phone numbers or not? Um, so if there's a certain, person who's being unsafe towards you directly or you notice other people at the meeting, one option is to talk to them directly about it. Another uh, thing that people have done successfully is asking someone else at the meeting to watch their back, saying, hey, I'm feeling unsafe around this person. Can you, if you see them come and talk to me, can you please come right up and step in on the conversation? So directly asking for help in relation to a certain situation. Um, and also, um, there was some debate about it within our group, but to what extent you might talk to someone's sponsor. If someone seems to be acting out, making sexist comments, for example, you might talk to them directly or you might talk to their, that person's sponsor. And we, there was mixed feelings about it within our group. Uh, sponsorship itself um, brings up issues of hierarchy and th there was kind of a consensus in the group of sponsors and sponsees having discussion, open discussion about boundaries in their sponsor relationship and talking about choice, what level of hierarchy do you want in the sponsor-sponsee relationship? And it's important for sponsors and sponsees to agree on that for that particular relationship and that there's a variety. Some people want very non-hierarchical sponsors and some people want a hierarchical sponsor and that as long as that's clear, it seems safe. Um, with me coming from um, SLAA, 
there's a there's just a wealth of resources in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous because that fellowship is all about what so much of these safety issues are about because they're around sexual issues. So I just encourage you guys to go to an SLA meeting or look at that literature because when we talk about sponsorship in SLAA, we say choose a sponsor with whom issues of romance or sexual attraction will not arise. And that's a phrase I've never heard outside of SLAA and it could be used in other meetings in those safety statements or when talking about sponsorship. Um, we also talked about invitational language, um, especially in the preamble or script, but uh, meaning um, you have a choice. Like if it's a guided meditation, you know, we invite you to pay attention to your breath. If that's not comfortable for you, choose a different object. Um, and also, you know, giving people options like, you know, is it okay if I give you a hug? You know, really um, using language that's constantly uh, putting power control back into the person who might have a trauma history. And then we talked about oversight committees that had come out of the main group, um, this idea of training a team of allies and pointing out who those people are that are safe to go to, um, making sure literature is safe. And so uh, different local groups have chosen not to use literature that might have been approved for their national sangha because they felt the literature itself wasn't safe. Um, we talked about how open sharing can be triggering, but we also want to feel safe to share. So there's that um, give and take. Um, and then as I'm very aware of time, and so I'm, I know it's a, it may seem trivial, but sometimes it feels violent to me when people just talk on and on for 10 minutes. So having a timer helps me feel safer at a meeting. And one other thing, um, which is a great point, if a meeting doesn't feel safe, start your own meeting. And if you don't like any of the current Buddhist recovery fellowships, start your own flavor of meeting and give it your own name and make it feel really safe for you. And I thought that was awesome. Wonderful, thank you. And that was question five, right? Okay, question six. Who has question six? And could you make sure, um, Amanda's going to be taking all of these. Okay. Hi, um, I'm Stevie and Hi. Um, our question was, what does safe space look like in the online community? And um, there was a lot of people with different kinds of experience in our group, um, some of it in recovery groups and some of it in other types of groups that use online platforms to reach out to their community. Um, so these are some of the uh, possibilities that we came up with. Um, one of the first things was like remembering that we're here for the newcomer. Um, in recovery groups so that that's kind of a shared intention that all groups have in some capacity. Um, group responsibility for developing group guidelines or agreements um, for the, this online space that's being used. So having some kind of agreements that people know about prior to entering into that group, whether it's a Facebook or social media group or whether it's like an online meeting, um, having some kind of clarity right away where people see it and they can understand like I'm agreeing to you know to act in this way if I want to be a part of this thing um, and then having moderators who ha have the ability to in some way hold people accountable to those agreements whether it's like approving the posts if it's like a social media group or if it's um, we, that was the main one we talked about I'm sure there's other ones um, also and so, and so that it would include like defining the purpose of the social media group or the online group. And so if it's a group that's for 
sharing information about, we, we talked about some groups um, have social media, that's the purpose of it is to share information about where meetings are held, how to get in contact with the group, like basic stuff to help create um, fellowship and community, um, and that making it clear that, that what the group is for so that it doesn't become a discussion group for some other topic. So especially, this was mentioned a lot in regards to like Facebook, um, you know, that if a, if a Facebook group is the purpose of it, is defined by the people that created that group, that it's for giving people resources for recovery and showing them how to access recovery in their community. Um, that if things start getting posted that are discussions, um, for example, the, the discussion was brought up about this, the uh, things with Noah Levine, that people are invited to talk about that in another space so that the space is open for people to access the information they need to get in contact with recovery. Um, or whatever that group decides that online space is for. Um, so group autonomy and making those decisions. Um, and then having some kind of either like a vetting process or guidelines for moderators so that people that are moderating the group have um, some understanding of the principles that their group is entrusting them to do on that in that online space and that those things are agreed upon by somebody other than just one moderator. Um, and that the moderators are then also supported by their their sangha or their community to um, to keep that online space safe, and that there's some kind of um, accountability there for moderators or just guidelines. Um, another one was also just like choosing the platform with which you engage online mindfully. So people mentioned like Facebook can be a really difficult space to interface with, that there's a lot of like heated stuff that happens on that. So maybe choosing a different interface, um, different interfaces to connect with people through online communities. Um, obviously social media is something that everybody uses and it's a way that we like promote groups and get connected. Um, but it, for informational things, like it is possible to look into different platforms to host your information or your meetings or whatnot online. And, th and being mindful about that and being mindful about what kind of um, space that creates. Um, another, uh, some kind of a system to, if people are using, um, I think this is mostly about social media, people are using, um, maybe coming up with some kind of a system to approve posts, if that's something that you want to have kind of a like, little a process between somebody posting and it going live, coming up with a system of for doing that. Um, also having, um, somebody had a great idea of having like a sticky or something on the page or in the group that has um, reminders of what the intentions are and also resources of like, if you wanna post something really heated, maybe like look at these puppy videos for a minute or do this five minute meditation <laughs> and then come back to it or something like that. I think there is, um, some really great ideas around how to just support people in an online space. There's a lot of discussion around the fact that it's a lot of times new people who are on in the online space, who are accessing that space the most. And how do we create a space that's supportive to them and making it feel like this is a place where you can come and get resources for recovery, not a place where you go and you end up in a long debate about something um, that people are having really intense feelings about that maybe you don't know anything about and sort of like trying to create spaces where people can get their needs met and being mindful of um, who's accessing those spaces the most. And um, and then another great idea was like if there is um, 
a lot of this stuff has to do with social media. I think these things do also relate to online meeting spaces. Um, but if there is somebody that is, you know, for instance, uh, not uh, like it, acting in a way that's, that seems like it's disruptive or harmful to the group in some way, whether that's going against the group agreements or whatever has been decided for that platform, um, to have some kind of a personal intervention with that person, if, if at all possible, like not through the screen. Um, and someone shared experience of somebody on their Facebook page having, like making a lot of comments about stuff all the time and, um, and then reaching out to that person personally in, within their sangha and bringing that person into the sangha and getting them connected to the community and how that actually changed um, everything about like the way that that person was engaging with the community and, and keeping in mind that there are people on the other side of the screen and so how do we engage with those humans um, in a way that's actually connective and bringing people into sangha or into, into recovery spaces that's welcoming. Um, and maybe that was, I think so. I think that's it. Yeah, let's applaud everyone who's done this so far. This is great. We're going to continue doing that. Okay, group seven. Group seven, group seven, group seven. So our question was, how do recovery communities conduct inventories of themselves, and is that happening? So first out of the chute, we decided that you really need a safety statement, so you have a standard to check against. And uh, discussion also led around a lot of some of the groups are peer-led, so it's taking a long time. And some people are also having a hard time because they're relatively new, and if somebody comes up to them and says that they have an issue or they know somebody who has an issue, they're having a hard time uh, dealing with that. So we just, we didn't have any uh, real answer to that. We just wanted to be sensitive about it. We talked about uh, people actually policing themselves and like using the safety statement every once in a month or so we can go back over the rules and uh, actually have a legal person there and maybe do this as a rotational group and have that kind of as the rules as a work in progress so everybody still keeps it in their the forefront of their minds you know what the safety really is and use that as a way to police them um, we also talked about uh, in one of the Theravadan traditions that confessing every day kind of normalizes coming clean. And so it stops the shame and things don't get quite so big as, you know, something huge happening. And uh, we also talked about the fact that the five precepts are frequently used as a way to talk about safety and that uh, we should talk about them as a practice for the community and not as rules. Uh, this is particularly like uh, sexuality is a natural human thing 
So this is more uh, training for people to keep this in the forefront of their minds with, uh, you know, correct, uh, not stealing, correct speech, you know, correct action. And um, if we talk about it this way, this also uh, promotes uh, self-acceptance and uh, which makes it easier for people to actually look at, uh, at accountability. Uh, somebody said that particularly new people don't want to have a sense of being policed, but somebody else said that um, if you're in recovery, you're probably not opposed to taking inventory. Uh, so, uh, and it might be, it might actually be good to have, like, take uh, an inventory of the group, maybe at the beginning or the end of a group, of every group, or with the business meetings, maybe do like one of the precepts and, you know, how is our group doing on this? Uh, and uh, like I think in 12 step, there's, they've got inventory questions like how welcoming are we? and and that kind of stuff. And uh, again, to present the precepts, particularly in this context, as community and individual rights, we have the right, we all have the right to be here uh, without people gossiping or having aggressive speech. We all have the right to be here without people being, you know, drunk or using it in our face. We and talk about it in that way. And uh, one of the last uh, things that we talked about is being mindful about who's owning the or holding the accountability. It seems frequently that the people who are at risk, the uh, women identifying or people of color are the ones that the onus is on them to bring it up and that uh, it should be um, also the, you know, the, the white men and the white women should also um, should hold that and should bring that up and not put the onus on the people who are most affected, but also to make sure that that everybody has the ability to feel that they can bring it up. Thank you. Appreciate it. So group eight. Okay, so our question was, what constitutes an outside issue when a teacher has been found to have acted in a manner inconsistent with a sexual misconduct preset or sexual conduct preset? Um, Ours is pretty simple. We decided that there's no such thing as an outside issue if a teacher is empowered to teach or a person has taken the five lay precepts. So there's, there is no outside issue. It's quite that simple. Um, the, uh, the idea there was that the, um, we wrote down here a higher bar for Buddhist recovery as opposed to just uh, recovery and some question about that. But within Buddhist recovery, the five lay precepts are explicit. Um, and I understand in regular recovery in the eight step, 12 step program, they are more implicit. But under Buddhist recovery, they are explicit. And therefore, it's a higher bar with a Buddhist recovery program. So that's about it for us. 
So um, I just wanted to share this book with you. This is the book that I am a co-author in. It's uh, sexual, Clergy Sexual Misconduct. And so this has a lot of really good stuff in it that if you, you know, it's got scripture and all of that stuff. But I mean, you can just blow past that if that's not comfortable for you. And, and Jeremy here, he, he can tell you about it. He read it. And so I just thought this would be another good guide for any of you guys. And also, I just wanted to piggyback with Barbara that um, if you haven't read the SLAA big book, it is really, really great. So I just want to say that. Do any of the other panelists want to say a short closing statement? Can I tell a joke to lighten things up? <laughs> uh, why did the Dharma teacher walk into the bar? Because it was set too low. <laughs> Anyone beat that one? Okay, let's, Jeremy, okay. You know, I mentioned a few times um, uh, that Hamera is a philanthropic foundation and we're eager to help. I heard a few times uh, people say, well, we would love to do this, we'd love to do that, but our group, you know, doesn't have any resources. Um, let's have a conversation. Um, you know, we're looking for ways to help out and make a difference. So um, please be in touch. I'll, I'll have some business cards and uh, some copies of the... Um, request for proposals that we put out about our uh, Healthy Buddhist Communities program. I don't know if that'll apply to all the different groups that are represented here, but it may apply to many. You know, I started with the accountability uh, piece, and I think that's, uh, that's part of it for me. I, Vince and I were talking last night briefly and to me, the all of this is brought about for me. The and I think Brian, actually, you were alluding to it this morning as well. Like, what is the place of uh, teachers in the community these days, and uh, especially in sort of Western Buddhism? What is the what is the role of the teacher? Um, uh, you know. Uh, our teachers are, for the most part, not just out there with begging bowls wandering around the towns, right? There is a there is a capitalist piece of this, and how does that intersect? Um, what is the role of uh, Buddhist communities in terms of supporting their teachers? Um, how is that best done? Um, you know, I I would have to say that certainly for me, the last. 18 months have brought about uh, uh, a very different relationship to to the Buddhist teachers in my life, you know, and what what role they play in my life. Um, and so I really hope that actually, and you know, part of why I placed myself this morning in the sort of the more negotiation of needs piece is because I don't. I don't actually have a whole lot of interest in, frankly, talking about Noah Levine or the issue specific to Noah Levine. What I do have a bigger, big interest in is how do teachers fit into a, a Western Buddhist community life? And, you know, like all of us really taking on that conversation because, you know, I mean, we've had these people that have transgressed or whatever you want to say. and, and um, 
that you know that's humans being human you know and it does invite i think this really larger more systemic question of what all of uh, of the teacher in the uh, in the in the western Thanks everyone for listening. If anything stood out to you during our podcast, feel free to share with us about it on the Buddhist Recovery Network Facebook page. Uh, Next week, we will be sharing another talk from the summit titled Taboo Addictions, which covers topics on addictions and compulsive behaviors related to sex, porn, love, eating disorders, internet addictions, shopping, collecting. So yeah, tune in next week. Okay, everyone, have a great week. Love you. Keep going. May we all find what brings us peace and share that peace with our communities.